Um, one of the things that I came across in preparing for this lecture was, was this hotel um, that Nissan has, has named after its autonomous driving technology, the, uh, the self-parking system that they're now fitting to, to their cars. Uh, and it's, it's a remarkable uh, hotel. The rooms, um, the typical Japanese hotel rooms, you know, rows of, of uh, slippers at the door, cushions on the floor, low tables, but they're all self-parking, which means that if, if you press a button, everything goes back to its, where it ought to be. Apparently, the, the guests spend a lot of time playing with it. Um, that, that's the row of, the row of slippers. Um, and... <laughs> As you can imagine, I could not resist showing you that. I, I'll, I'll spare you the, the, the video of the, the table and the chairs moving around. You can, you can find that in the reference in the transcript. Um, but it occurred to me, you know, Nissan has invented the poltergeist. <laughs> You're asleep and, and suddenly all the furniture's moving around. It, it must be really scary. The Internet of Things, um, very, very popular, very important, really exciting a lot of people, exciting a lot of governments because of the potential, exciting a lot of industrialists, a lot of consultants, uh, already here, really happening in a big way. Um, the term was, was invented um, by a guy, Kevin Ashton, um, 1999. He was, in fact, talking about a, a world where everything was tagged with these radio frequency ID tags that you, you get on goods to stop you stealing them in, from, uh, from shops if they're, if they're high-value goods you know, for, for shoplifting control. Uh, and... The, the term has just taken off, and, and now, of course, it, retur it refers mostly to um, things which have actually got serious processes in sensors, networked connections. Um, this, this is a, a recent report by the UK Government Office of Science, where they really look at the, the potential for the UK of the Internet of Things. And it's just one example of a number of reports that have been produced by, by governments and international bodies because the Internet of Things is seen as, as so important. So, so what's a thing? Well, we, we need... And it, a thing in the Internet of Things is essentially a connection between uh, communications, between the digital world, and between the physical world. So the Internet of Things has either got a sensor or an actuator, a thing in the Internet of Things. It can either sense things or it can affect the real world by changing things. It may have both. It needs a processor to control them. It needs potentially some data storage because it, it may need some memory in order to be able to remember what it's done and what it's doing or calculate time series and so on. It needs a transceiver so that it can receive commands and, and perhaps transmit data away if it's, if it's got a sensor and it's reporting something. And it needs power. And, and all of those things present some interesting 
challenges for the engineer and for the designer, and we'll come on to some of those in the future, in a bit later on in the lecture. The Internet of Things has, has got a reputation for being a bit gimmicky, and you, you can see why. I mean, who, who needs a kettle that they can control from their from their iPhone? The you know the the fact that that you can can turn it on from from bed so that it it's already boiling when you get downstairs, or on on your way in from from uh, from the office you can start the kettle boiling. You know, this it it all feels a bit a bit gimmicky. But actually, the, the Internet of Things is much more than this. Because the Internet of Things covers a vast range of different scale of objects. At, at the personal end, you, you get the kettle, you get the refrigerator that, that perhaps can detect whether you're running low on milk and communicate to, to the supermarket that you need more milk. That sounds, again, gimmicky, but it's the equivalent of something that is already in, in place and already working and proving its worth in pharmacies and hospitals, for example, which can detect when they're running low on particular drugs that they need and reorder them automatically and perhaps save lives by making sure that, that the pharmacy doesn't run out. So you, you see the difference in scale at that level. This is a part of the, the great water redistribution um, canal in, in China that is, is moving water from, from the wet south to the dry north. They're in each of the three over a thousand kilometers and they're, they're heavily instrumented. And they've got 100,000 Internet of Things sensors on each of the canals detecting everything from uh, pollutants in the water and intruders to movement in, in the banks, um, whether there's water seepage, just generally protecting the civil infrastructure that, that is this, this hugely important um, canal system. And these are a few of the sensors. Just you, you see that, again, small Internet of Things sensors positioned appropriately to, to detect things and then to report, maybe to take direct action themselves. But the Internet of Things is a much wider range. And the uh, Internet Society has decided in a report that they produced to classify Internet of Things by location, by, by grouping them together, by, by where you find them. And so, for example, you, you find Internet of Things, things on, on the body. On the left there is a, is a smart pill that you actually swallow and which can report the fact that you have taken it, that it has been digested, um, because there is a significant problem with medical treatment where the medics can't actually tell whether the patient is taking the treatment, uh, and therefore when the patient comes back and says, it's not working, doctor, they really don't know whether to up the dose or whether to give them a different treatment, when in fact this way they can tell whether or not the, the patient has actually been taking the treatment at all or taking it appropriately. And there's blood pressure monitors. On top right there is a, is a heart pacemaker embedded and, and there are ranges of fitness monitors and so on, as, as you will have seen. In, in the home you get 
a huge range of, of smart home devices, um, lots and lots of cameras of all sorts. Baby monitors come with cameras these days, not, not just audio. Um, pictures turn up in some funny places, of course. The uh, home um, controls of the smart home, again, almost everything increasingly now can be turned on and off either remotely or without stirring from your from your seat in order to control your lighting your heating um, obviously your kettle and so on and, and a whole range of of in intelligent loudspeakers and personal assistants listening to to what you say listening out for commands taking appropriate actions and the range of actions that they can take is in increasing at a remarkable rate. There's a lot of different IoT in shops, a lot of it already active. The things that you can see here already obviously in, in shops and, and you see them as you go around. Lots more things coming in or, or gradually being introduced. Um, shops are very interested in, in where people stop, um, whether they can detect what it is about a, a display causes somebody to take something off the shelf. What it is about the packaging on the object that, that decides whether they put it in their basket or whether they put it back on the shelf. And so there's a lot of monitoring right down at that level. And of course, because you can identify individual people's phones, it's very easy to track an individual shopper around a shop and determine where they're pausing, what they're doing, and then finally what they end up buying. Lots in workplaces, of course, all the things that you would expect and, and undoubtedly a lot more. Lots of remotely controlled vehicles, remotely controlled cranes and so on. Lots in hospitals. I don't know if, if you can see the, the red arrows that we've overlaid on, on this. This is a, a slide that uh, Howell Thimbleby and I used when we were uh, lecturing recently on computers in hospitals and, and the way that um, they lead clinicians to make mistakes that end up killing people or, or permanently injuring people. Uh, if, if, you, if you look at the transcript for that, you'll, you'll see the evidence that we found that um, about 10,000 people get, get killed or permanently injured by, as a result of mistakes in, in hospitals in the UK every year. And, and a lot of those uh, errors are, are caused by badly designed computer systems. Um, and some of them increasingly will be caused by people hacking into networked computer systems. So you have a, an awful lot of computer systems which are increasingly networked for convenience so that they can collect data and display it to on nurses stations so that they can log data that the hospital needs so that they can be found um, because of course a lot of this equipment moves around from ward to ward or from patient bed to patient bed and so a lot of these sorts of systems are networked they're internet of things devices and of course they present an, an interestingly large attack surface for somebody who wants to to cause trouble in the hospital. But it is startling the number of, of computers that you find if, if you go looking in a hospital. You find them on, on work sites, 
we find IoT everywhere doing, doing preventive maintenance, doing um, in, in cities, monitoring traffic, um, controlling traffic lights, sensing people moving around. Lots and lots of IoT devices and a great growth in the whole industry of providing Internet of Things interactions. And these things, of course, you know, they're, they're affecting our world. They're monitoring us. They're recording lots and lots of data. And it's not always clear to the people being, being monitored exactly what data is being collected about them. The IoT market is growing. It, um, it attracts a lot of excitement for governments that, that want the, the tax revenue. It certainly excites the um, management consultants who, who can spot an opportunity uh, at, uh, at 100 paces to uh, leap on a bandwagon and sell new services to, to their clients and write detailed reports and encourage people to, uh, to invest in technology that may not quite be what they need or quite be yet fit for, for deployment. Um, and there are lots of such reports out. The, uh, in the transcript, you'll, you'll see references to, to a couple just in the, the entertainment um, and, and music space where the, main, the consultants are, are forecasting that by 2020 there will be of the order of 20 billion devices in the world uh, and, and a market that is growing at, at a really quite remarkable rate. So the, the opportunities for businesses to, to, to supply this market and the opportunity for um, end users, be they companies, be they, be they individual consumers, to acquire new devices in this area is quite enormous. The, the main sectors at the moment are, as you can see, um, the, the sort of areas that you perhaps would have expected. And the main countries um, that are, are winning this market share are the, are the USA, China and Japan. And the USA has 22% of, of the market. China's got 19%. Japan, 6%. The UK is down at about 2%, although the the consultants are forecasting that there will be significant investment in the UK and that that market share will increase. So it's, it's a big market. It's important. It's important in terms of what it's doing to the world and it's important in terms of the jobs it's creating, the wealth it's creating and the distribution of that wealth. And of course, it, it's been around for a long time and... There have been examples of Internet of Things um, in, in real industrial use for a significant length of time. So um, Rolls-Royce, for example, decided that they were going to instrument their en engines extremely well, for primarily for maintenance purposes initially, I think, um, so that they could do predictive maintenance. But what it's enabled them to do is to change their business model completely so that they sell engine time now rather than selling engines. And that's a model which is increasingly being adopted by other industries. If you collect the right data, 
you can actually build a complete new, completely different business model around it. And so the instrumentation capabilities of the Internet of Things actually are, are hugely enabling for new business processes. We're, we're all benefiting from um, the improved accuracy of traffic uh, forecasts and journey time forecasts that come from the monitoring of of people moving around by tracking smartphones, feeding it back into the, to the sat-nav systems in order that you can get real-time updates on, on traffic jams and so on. Um, sometimes that, that doesn't work. Um, you may have noticed, for example, that the embankment down by Parliament was blocked fairly recently because they, they were digging up the road for a gas main. Um, Google Maps spotted very, very quickly that that meant that the embankment didn't have any traffic on it. So an awful lot of people got rooted down there. <laughs> uh, the same, same thing happened, I think, on the M62 fairly recently when, when it was uh, out of action for, uh, for some reason. And uh, again, suddenly people were finding themselves getting rooted that way into the, the traffic jams and, and, and the blockages rather than away from them. But these things are obviously easy to spot and fix, so that, that's just teething troubles, I think. Um, Streetlights in San Diego are, are really remarkably well um, instrumented. They, they are even um, detecting whether parking spaces are, are vacant and reporting that information. They're detecting gunshots and, and being able to do triangulation on the, on the gunshots and reporting the sound of gunshots to the police. So lots of, of existing benefits from um, IoT devices. Oh, these, are, these are just a few, plenty more in the transcript. As I said, all the, the capabilities that you need create some engineering challenges. And when you're talking about having more IoT devices by orders of magnitude than we've got people on the planet, you start to worry about running out of address space in, in the, the normal existing uh, IP version 4. Um, IP version 6 increases uh, the number of addresses to the point where it will not only survive for this planet, but for every other planet that we may ever colonise in the future. So. Um, the engineers are thinking positively, following up on, on the uh, recommendations that, uh, that the late lamented Stephen Hawking was, was uh, fond of putting forward, that we really do need to be getting on and colonising some other planets to make sure we survive. The address space is, is one challenge. That's, that's being fixed through, through IPv6, although it's not, not widely enough adopted yet. Um, long lifetimes is a real problem. If you're going to embed sensors into a canal, for example, you, you want them to last as long as the structure does because you're putting them in places that are going to be very difficult to, to get to, to, to replace them. If you're monitoring the weather in the Arctic, you don't want to have to go back to, to fix a problem that's arisen. So the fact that you're... You're introducing um, systems into to structures or, or into larger systems where the lifetime of that larger system is, is really very long is, is a major engineering challenge. 
Um, one of the problems with medical devices as, at the moment is that people are putting um, software which typically has a three to five year maximum lifetime before which it, it falls out of maintenance into devices that have a design lifetime of 15 years. And, and it's not always clear to the people buying the devices that actually the design lifetime is going to be um, compromised by the fact that the software won't be maintained over that period of time. So there's some real challenges in deciding how, as an engineer, how, how do you fix that? What do, what do you do if you're selling a, a device to make sure that it will, in fact, be usable over the sort of lifetime that your customer expects it to? It's a big challenge for, for driverless cars and um, for, for um, cars, high automation cars of any sort, because, of course, we, we expect to be able to buy a car and for it to continue working for, what, 15, 20, 30 years? And, and yet, a lot of the subsystems that are being put into those cars really don't realistically have that sort of design lifetime because of the difficulty of maintaining the software over that period. IoT devices live in some very hostile environments, so you've got some, some big problems in the packaging in the, in the physical area. You've got a, a power problem. How, how do you power remote devices? Um, yes, you can use batteries. You may be able to use solar cells, although that's not going to work if they're buried inside the, the, the bottom of a canal. Um, in, increasingly... The proposal is that some of these devices, the, the, the ones that are going to be really remote and very difficult to power, need to be harvesting energy from, from the environment, in particular from radio waves. Uh, and there are some really interesting startups that are, that are marketing devices which do that really quite effectively. Cost is obviously a, an issue um, because... Quite often, IoT devices are a, are a small add-on to a cheap, a cheap product, and therefore it has to be a cheap IoT device that is, is embedded in that product. Otherwise, it distorts the, the sale price of the entire thing. Network access is a major issue. Um, OK, if you're, you're in a city and you've got reasonable um, coverage of, of a, a mobile network, but if you're putting IoT devices out over a, a wide area or in remote areas, then maybe what you actually have to do is to use the mesh network technologies where each device detects its surrounding devices and, and they help each other by passing data packets, having, having acknowledged and built a network simply by finding the devices that are around, you can, you can then pass data packets to each other and cover a long distance by, by hopping in that sort of way. And these, these networks, again, are increasingly coming into use. And, of course, you've, you've got lots of local legislation issues that, that actually affect what you can do as an engineer. And the General Data Protection Regulation that controls the way in which personal data is used is going to be a major issue for IoT devices, um, certainly right across the European Union, and almost certainly 
for a number of countries beyond the European Union, if they're either selling into the EU or if they're processing, likely to be processing the data of EU citizens, in which case they fall under GDPR if they have any operation in the EU. So, um, you know, if, if you've got a factory somewhere in the, in the EU, um, but actually all your devices are being used somewhere outside the EU, you'll still get caught by, by GDPR. And that comes into force in the middle of May, so that's, uh, that's imminent. And so if, certainly if you've been coming to my earlier lectures, you won't be surprised that there are security issues. And security is a, is a difficult issue. IoT devices typically have weak security. Largely, I think, because of the sort of engineering issues I've just been talking about. And, and it's very hard, given those constraints, to do security properly. Because, for example, encryption takes power. Um, and, and the harder your encryption, the more power it takes, because there's more processing that needs to be done. That's why in the UK, the, the smart gas meters don't have as high security as the smart electricity meters because you haven't got electricity power for gas meters. So they have to run off batteries. And, and the way that the UK has decided to implement the security on gas meters, on smart gas meters, is to actually put most of the security into a hub on the smart electricity meter in the same premises and have a weaker security communication that is just over the local link to the gas meter. Engineering solutions to, to difficult engineering challenges. One of the problems is that people network systems with bad security, either to save cost, um, you know, that, that's why you get MRI scanners in hospitals networked to the internet. It's it's so that when there is a maintenance problem, they don't have to call out an engineer. It can be maintained remotely. So it's a cost and time efficiency consideration rather than a decision that's really been taken about, about security and, and probably without, um, taken without a really detailed risk analysis. And things get networked by accident. Uh, a maintenance man comes along and plugs a maintenance computer into something to do diagnostics on it. And the maintenance computer, which is, you know, the, the engineer's portable computer, is, is already got an internet connection. Uh, and suddenly that device has got an internet connection, even if only temporarily. Or people um, connect a, a system running in a factory to their enterprise IT systems that, that do all the monitoring and running of the business in order that they can collect and process data to go into management accounts or for whatever reason. And by doing so, they actually end up connecting the control systems in their, in their factory to the internet. And it's a channel through which attacks can occur. Malware has, has turned up in some most remarkable places, um, ATMs, for example, as a result of of these sorts of connections and the ability for, for malware to propagate. If you deliberately set up a, 
a honeypot. If you if you set up a new a new server that you're going to put on the internet for the first time, completely clean system, um, and monitor what happens, and you just connect it to the internet without a firewall, uh, it will be attacked within seconds typically, and usually penetrated within minutes. That's the the level of automated searching and and infection that is is going on on the internet all the time. That, that's that's your, your background noise of cyber security. So it, it is important to be careful about, about systems. And the threat from cyber attacks, um, the National Cyber Security Centre has, has been pointing out just how, how much the threat from cyber attacks is growing all the time. Uh, there, is, there is an assumption now that most important systems have been mapped. Um, the Russians, in particular, seem to be taking great interest in utility companies, for example, and, and have been for, for a number of years. I don't doubt that every other major power is doing exactly the same thing. It would be incompetent of the UK not to be um, carrying out the same sort of, of um, reconnaissance of, of major systems and, to a degree, compromise of, of those systems just in case you ever need to be able to, to turn them off. It's... It's one of the ways in which cyber warfare will support conventional diplomacy in the future. And this is a subject I will return to with, uh, with some real examples and some scary videos in my next lecture. And we have a, a system, a search engine, Shodan, that, that was... Um, it was created for um, very benign reasons, actually. The, uh, a guy called John Matherley in 2009 decided that it would be really useful for companies to know who was using their software and whether they'd taken the latest updates. So he produced a search engine that scans the internet and sends out probes to every device that it finds on the internet and from the responses that it gets, detects what operating system is being run, what the state of the software is, what services are available, what ports are open on the device. Lots of information about, about that device. Uh, and, and Shodan scans the whole internet. It doesn't do what search engines do and follow links. Um, Shodan scans IP address areas just, just by going through IP addresses. Uh, and so it finds anything, things on, on the dark web as well as, as, well as things on, on the open web. And, of course, a lot of the things that are found turn out to be insecure. Um, the, the Mirai botnet that, um, that was used to attack Brian Krebs, the... Um, the activist who, uh, who is a real internet security guru and goes, goes after cyber criminals and, and tracks them down and gets them arrested. His, his website was attacked a while back by what was then the biggest denial-of-service attack that had ever been seen on the internet. It was a vast amount of data that was thrown at his website. He'd got it well protected and... And very rapidly, the, the protective stuff cut in but, and, and took the load off. 
the website, but nevertheless, it, it knocked him over for, for a while, made him sufficiently cross that he set about finding the people, and he has, in fact, had them arrested, and they have pleaded guilty. It took him about a year, but, uh, but it looks as though the people who wrote the, the Mirai botnet and, and then attacked him will, will end up in, in jail in America. But that botnet was 300,000 devices, each of which was throwing data at, at Brian Krebs. And those devices were webcams and DVD players, ordinary domestic equipment that happened to be on the internet, which had got Linux running on the devices because it, it's the easy way to get some functionality that was needed for a, a network-connected camera, for example. I think I've got... You won't be able to see that, I don't suppose. But, but this is just a a list of the manufacturers and the, the username and passwords, the default passwords for each of these devices because that's what made them insecure. And, and then on the right is a whole set of, um, of web addresses that actually provide all the evidence for the fact that, that this is true, that those really are the devices with those default passwords. But you, they're root, root passwords, a lot of these, with, with completely easily guessable passwords, even if they weren't default passwords, but in fact they are and they're well known and they're you know, either um, well known on the internet or they're sometimes even written up in the documentation. So even insecure domestic devices, IoT devices, can cause trouble for other people and potentially for the world because you can turn the Mirai botnet on, on any device that you wanted to attack and if somebody wanted to use it to to attack a hospital for example that would be um, a particularly un unpleasant thing for the hospital to have to deal with um, not least because they wouldn't have invested in the level of, of protection against ddos attacks that brian krebs has got and the software for the mirai botnet was released on the internet it's on github and anybody who wants it can have it Showdown, because of its capabilities, has been described as, as the scariest search engine because it just finds things. And these are just a few of the cameras that, that it picked up. Um, and, you know, they're, I'm just cycling through a, a few of them there, but, but you know, people in, in care homes... Um, control devices in, in factories, all sorts of bits of IoT equipment that you can find readily and then, and then look at on the internet simply because the basic security of, of the cameras in this case haven't, haven't actually been implemented. So that's, that's security. Um, and then there's... There's a privacy issue. The, the report, the Government Office of Science report that I mentioned earlier, um, contains a, a quote about privacy, essentially saying, you know, we, we need to worry about this because um, even if you think that the Internet of Things is, is just a large number of benign devices that are collecting tiny amounts of data that aren't linked to anything in particular data mining techniques and data combination techniques now enable you to build a very rich picture of individuals 
by putting together small amounts of data that have been collected uh, over, over uh, the Internet of Things. And, and we've seen a bit of the power of, of this data mining in the revelations about the Facebook data and the way that it's been used to target individual voters to manipulate elections and it's all over the news at the moment. So is there any, any privacy left? Um, and the, the CEO of, of Sun Microsystems back in, oh, 20 years ago now, said in, in a press conference when he was challenged about, about the security of, of the systems he was selling, um, you don't have any privacy, get over it, he said. And, and increasingly, that, that really is the case. And top, top right here, we've got, we've got drones with high-resolution cameras sold as children's toys at children's toys sort of price, but being used extremely widely. Um, so, you know, fences or, or the fact that you're in a high-rise building doesn't guarantee you any privacy anymore. Um, streaming, streaming video. Um, bottom right, increasingly, the surveillance from space is, is remarkably good. And th this is civil technology. The, the, the small CubeSats that are being put up now, and which are, are um, intended to, to provide enough coverage that almost everywhere on the Earth, everywhere on the Earth, will be, will be um, covered every few minutes... Uh, they're now able to produce resolutions down to three centimetres. And, and that technology will only get better. They haven't hit the limits of physics yet. So wherever you are, it, it's impossible to hide from, from the surveillance, either from, from satellites or from, from cameras or... Lots of people, of course, are walking around with cameras in their pockets and are using them to, to take all kinds of video and stream it on the internet. And, and face recognition is now sufficiently good that um, you can be identified if you've got a picture on the internet. You can, you can be found in somebody else's video stream. The police are using that quite a lot. And there's real uh, improvements being made, both in voice recognition and in gait recognition. The, the way that people walk is sufficiently individual that they can be, can be identified. So um, certainly the, um, the military satellites, were, where they're intercepting phone calls, are, are very, very good at uh, voice recognition now and can tell who's, who's making calls. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me to find that we're already at a state where, with the military technology, it's possible to identify individuals on the ground by the way they're walking. Um, if not today, then, then next month, because of the pace that, that the technology keeps, keeps moving. Bottom left is, is a, a doorbell. Um, this is a, a company that has just been bought by Amazon. And the door, just above the doorbell is a, is a video camera. Um, so everybody who, who goes up to that front door gets, gets caught on the video camera. The, the system behind it records. Um, it opens up some interesting challenges because under GDPR, for no cost, you're entitled to all the personal data that anybody collects on you. So if you happen to want to put on a, 
a small performance of, of your next show in front of somebody's doorbell and then ask them for the, uh, for the video, uh, they're obliged to provide it to you. And in fact, when uh, street video cameras were first installed in the UK, there was a theatre company that actually did start making films by going around the video cameras and, and putting on individual scenes and then and using the data access requests to, to get the video from the video cameras and, and stitch it together to produce, to produce videos. I, I think this is going to become a, a national sport. I, I went looking, just, just had a little poke around for, for some online cameras with, with default passwords. So the top left one is, is, a, is a cafe in, in the United Kingdom in, in London. Um, and and I, I watched for, for some time, and it was, it, I mean, these are just still pictures, but, but the video uh, is being streamed live, and, and people were just, you know, moving around, getting together, talking, um, working on their computers, and, and the resolution was sufficiently good, you could see what was on the computer screen. Um, so, you know, it's the UK, it's, it's Portugal, it's France, it's Bulgaria, lots of of these cameras exist on the, on the internet and anybody can go looking for them because it's terribly easy to find them and there are websites set up to, to do exactly that. Um, this, the particular website I was, I was using here um, does actually, uh, they claim, um, screen out all the cameras that are in people's bedrooms and, um, and in um, baby monitors and you know, all the places where it, it really would be... Um, extremely unfortunate if, if, the, if the video stream was, was going out over the internet constantly. But, but even so, the, you, you can't see, but the, the young, young woman in the bottom left there, in the bottom left of that bottom left picture, is a, is a sales attendant uh, in, a, in a shop in Bulgaria wearing a fairly low-cut top. Um, and it, it was quite... Quite revealing. You know, the camera angle is unfortunate for for somebody who who is obliged to work there and will need to keep to keep bending forward. And then then there's the, the Strava heat map. This is this is an organisation that collects all the data that is uploaded from people's fitness monitors, Fitbits, and and related. And this is a map of, of three trillion data points that they've collected from these devices. And it's wonderful fun because it's, it's a map that shows all the data points where people wearing these fitness monitors have been and you can just drill down into it. So you can look at your own house, you can get down to that level of detail and see the the paths that people have taken running around your local area. And of course, as always happens in security, it has some unintended consequences. That's straight out of the, the heat map if you go looking in Afghanistan. And what you find is a, a military base that is not on the map but which shows up very clearly and very clearly identified the route that the people in that military base take when they go running outside the military base. 
and also the internal layout of the military base because people are walking around with, with those fitness monitors on. So even things that are considered to be military secrets get revealed by inadvertently by what looks like benign IoT technology. This, this is a, a recent report. Um, people being woken up by the fact that their, their Alexa devices have started suddenly laughing in a creepy way and scaring the children. It's, um, it's not surprising that this happens. The, the task of, of these voice recognition devices is very difficult. They've got to pick the command words out of a noisy background, a seriously noisy background. And, and they need to be able to do it when you're speaking from across the room. So if you actually look at the waveform that they're having to process, the amplitude of that waveform is extremely low. And, and quite often, it's quite difficult to see the real uh, wave in the noise. So they're having to do some pretty clever um, signal processing in order to, to pull the commands out. And of course, new commands are being added all the time because every time somebody wants to, to add in a new device that can be controlled by a voice command using one of these uh, existing personal assistants, they need new, new commands to be able to do it. And so the engineers have got, got the conflicting problem all the time that on the one hand they've they've got a, a real difficulty in recognizing exactly what's being said and on the other hand there are lots of an increasing number of things that they need to match against so it, it's not surprising that you know a dog barking in the distance gets picked up as alexa laugh and they fix this particular problem by by changing the command, so you have to say a few more words in order to be able to get Alexa to laugh. But, but the general problem is there, and it, it, it can only get worse. It's not going to go away in a hurry. So the IT is very important already. Has it regulated? Um, mostly not. Uh, governments have a policy that they won't regulate if it inhibits innovation or if they fear that it might inhibit innovation even. Uh, and some government departments have announced that as, as a policy. It's one of the, the Department of Transport uh, has apparently announced that it's, it's not about to start regulating um, driverless cars hard at the moment because it want, doesn't want to inhibit innovation. And in any case, the regulators don't have the skills or, or the resources to do it properly in the first place. So what's happening is that, that the devices are spreading at an enormous rate because of the opportunities that are there, both from the, from the user's point of view and, and from the um, developer's point of view. And the Consumer Electronics Show that in, uh, in America in the, in the last couple of months, um, lots and lots of voice-activated devices in the bathroom now. Um, voice-activated toilets, voice-activated um, shaving mirrors, vo voice-activated taps and showers. You know, it, it, it really is spreading everywhere. And 
I, if, you, if you came to the recent lecture that Harold Thimbleby and I gave on, on um, computer both in hospitals, you'll have seen the implications of some of this against a background of rising cybersecurity threats because these systems are increasingly attackable. So we are creating a, a much bigger attack surface in the world for, for people to exploit for, you know, whether you're, you're just somebody having fun, some, some kid in their bedroom who, who wants to, to exert a bit of power and have a bit of fun by being a bit of a vandal on the internet, or whether you're actually a um, government agency that is wanting to make sure that, that they've got a certain amount of control in case they need to use it as, as leverage at some point in the future. So I don't think we're going to see increased regulation anytime soon. What the government, the UK government has done, it, it's actually published a, um, an IoT code of practice that it wants manufacturers to adopt voluntarily. Um, and it, it's, it's really good stuff. I mean, no, no default passwords, that's, that's good. Uh, implement a vulnerability disclosure policy so that you, you publicise, if somebody finds a vulnerability, where do they report it to? And as part of that, you should make a commitment that you, that you fix that vulnerability very quickly. Um, keep software updated. That's, that's in itself quite a challenge. It's got to be done securely, of course. And actually, in the, in the detail of code of practice, they say... Um, you need to be able to do this in, in a lot of areas without stopping the device doing what it's doing because it may be doing something critical. Um, so there's a, a real challenge there. I'm, I don't think I've ever seen um, a, a, a device that only has one processor that's capable of, of achieving that. Um, securely store security-sensitive data, communicates securely. That, that's a, an argument there, really, for public key encryption, but, but as I said earlier, that's very power-hungry. So there's a conflict there, and, and an awful lot of, of organisations, of manufacturers, won't adopt uh, appropriately high-grade encryption. Minimise the exposed attack surfaces. What, what they mean there is, in particular, close off all the ports you're not using, shut down all the services that, that are in the software you've used. So the, the Mirai botnet works by exploiting the fact that Linux has got Telnet embedded in it, and it's the Telnet that had the default passwords. And, and that was, was what created the, the vulnerability. But of course, you know, the people, you, you buy a webcam, you've got no idea it's got a Telnet interface. And, and it's, it's not there because anybody needs to telnet to, your, to your, your web camera. It's there because it comes with Linux and the manufacturers didn't think it was worth or, or didn't realise they needed to take it out. Ensure software integrity, um, something I, I keep banging on about. The quality of software that's written around the world is woefully bad. Protect personal data. Make systems resilient to outages. Monitor system telemetry data. They, they want manufacturers where they are receiving data from devices 
to monitor that data in order to detect anything that looks unusual so that they can act upon it. Make it easy for consumers to delete personal data. That's going to be a challenge for, for almost everybody, including the, the people with the, the video cameras in their doorbells. Um, make installation and maintenance devices easy and validate input data. And that one's clearly been added in by the National Cybersecurity Centre. This is a, an attempt, I'm, I'm sure, to, uh, to try and stop the buffer overflow attacks that are so common where, where any input data, um, if, if you put in uh, malformed input data, you can cause the system to, uh, to misbehave in all sorts of ways that you may design. So, what do I conclude? It's here, it's important, it's growing, it offers great opportunities for all sorts of, of beneficial things, and it will affect our lives more and more. And the decisions that are taken about where IoT devices are put, how they're implemented, what happens to the data, will affect us all. And, and because these decisions will have long-lasting effects, they will affect our children and, and grandchildren. But it's clear that security is inadequate. Nobody's interested in, in doing regulation in a, in a serious way. There's a need to, to really invest properly in these things to try to ensure that people understand what, what they're doing, what they're buying, what they need to do to protect themselves as individuals or as companies. And we need some strategic thinking about the, the computer-based society, the, the cyber-based society that we're creating. Because there is no underlying strategy other than that the big companies want to make money and to make more money by collecting and processing more data. And, and that won't do as a strategy for the world. So some, somebody with, with real influence, some think tanks need to be planning what we need to do about it so that we can get involved and start creating the regulations and the structures and the enforcement so that we get the society that we want rather than the one that just happens around us. So that's it. <laughs>